Chapter Twenty Four of the Garden of Eden by Max Brand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. They had no means of knowing when David would return, and the ominous shadow of Joseph lingering near the patio determined Connor on a walk out of any possible earshot. They went down to the lake with the singing of the men on the other side of the hill growing dim as they descended. The cool of the day was beginning, and they walked close to the edge of the water, with the brown tree trunks on one side and the green images floating beyond. Peace lay over Eden Valley and the bright river that ran through it, but Ben Connor had no mind to dwell on unessentials. He had found in the girl an ally of unexpected strength. He expected only a difficult tool filled with scruples, drawing back, imperiling his plans with her hesitation. Instead, she was on fire with the plan. He thought well to fan that fire and keep it steadily blazing. It's better for David, better for him than it is for us. Look at that poor fool. He's in prison here and doesn't know it. He thinks he's happy, but he's simply kidding himself. In six months, I'll have him chatting with millionaires. Let a barber do a day's work on him first. No, it's just the long-haired nuts like that who get by with the high steppers. He has a lingo about flowers and trees that'll knock their eye out. I know the gang, always on the edge for something different. Music that sounds like a riot in a junk shop, and poetry that reads like a drunken printing press. Well, David ought to be different enough to suit him. I'll boost him, though. The man that brought out the Eden Greys. He'll be headline stuff. He laughed so heartily that he did not notice the quick glance of criticism which the girl cast at him. I'm not taking anything from him, really, went on Connor. I'm simply sneaking around behind him so I can pour his pockets full of coin. That's all there is to it. Outside of the looks, tell me if there's anything crooked you can see. I don't think there is, she murmured. I almost hope that there isn't. She was so dubious about it that Connor was alarmed. He was fond of Ruth Manning, but she was just different enough to baffle him. Usually he divided mankind into three or four categories for the sake of fast thinking. There were the boobs, the regular guys, the high steppers, and the nuts. Sometimes he came perilously close to including Ruth in the last class with David Eden and if he did not do so, it was mainly because she had given such an exhibition of cool courage only a few moments before. He had finished his peroration, now with a feeling of actual virtue, but the shadow on her face made him change his tactics and his talk. He confined himself thereafter strictly to the future. First he outlined his plans for raising the cash for the big killing. He told of the men to whom he could go for backing. There were hard guys who would take a chance, wise ones who would back his judgment, fall guys who would follow him blindly. For ten percent he would get all the cash he could place. Then it remained to try out the greys in secret, and in public let them go through their paces ridden under wraps and heavily weighted. He described the means of placing the big money before the great race. As he talked his figures mounted from tens to hundreds to thousands until he was speaking in millions. In all of this profit, she and David and Connor would share dollar for dollar. At the first corner of the shore they turned, 
she had arrived at a snug apartment in New York. She would have a housekeeper companion. There would be a cozy living room and a paneled dining room. In the entrance hall of the apartment house, imitation of encrusted marble, no doubt. But as they came opposite a little wooded island in the lake, she had added a maid to the housekeeper. Also, there was now a guest room. Someone from Lucan would be in that room. Someone from Lucan would go through the place with her, marveling at her good fortune. And clothes, they made all the difference. Dressed as she would be dressed, and when she came into a room, that queer, cold gleam of envy would be in the eyes of the women, and the men would sit straighter. Yet, when they had reached the place where the shoreline turned north and west, her imagination, spurred by Connor's talk, was stumbling along dizzy heights. Her apartment occupied a whole floor. Her butler was a miracle of dignity, and her chef a genius in the kitchen. On the great table the silver and glass were things of frosted light. Her chauffeur drove a monster automobile with a great purring engine that whipped her about the city with the color blown into her cheeks. In her box at the opera she was allowing the deep, soft luxury of the fur collar to slide down from her throat, while along the boxes in the galleries there was a ripple of light as the thousand glasses turned upon her. Then she found that Connor was smiling at her. She flushed, but snapped her fingers. This thing is going through, she declared. You won't weaken? I'm as cold as steel. Let's go back. He'll probably be in the house by this time. Time had slipped past her unnoticed, and the lake was violet and gold, with a sunset as they turned away. Under the trees along the terraces, the brilliant wildflowers were dimmed by a blue shadow. But I never saw wildflowers like those, she said to Connor. Nobody else ever did. But old Matthew, whoever he was, grew em and kept crossing em until he got those big fellows with all the colors of the rainbow. Hurry, we're late. No, David's probably on top of that hill now. Always goes up there to watch the sun rise and the sun set. Can you beat that? He chuckled, but a shade had darkened the face of the girl for a moment. Then she lifted her head resolutely. I'm not going to try to understand him. The minute you understand a thing, you stop being afraid of it. And as soon as I stop being afraid of David Eden, I might begin to like him, which is what I don't want. What's that? cried Connor, breaking in on her last words. When Ruth began to think aloud, he always stopped listening. It was a maxim of his to never listen when a woman became serious. It's that strange giant. Joseph, exclaimed Connor heavily, whipping him did no good. He'll need killing one of these days. But she had already reverted to another thing. Do you think he worships the sun? I don't think. Try to figure out a fellow like that, and you get to be just as much of a nut as he is. Go on toward the house, and I'll follow you in a minute. I want to talk to Big Joe. He turned aside into the trees briskly, and the moment he was out of sight of the girl, he called softly, Joseph. He repeated the call after a trifling wait before he saw the big man coming unconcernedly through the trees toward him. Joseph came close before he stopped, very close, as a man will do when he wishes to make another aware of his size, and from this point of vantage he looked over Connor from head to foot with a glance of lingering and insolent criticism. The gambler was somewhat amused and a little alarmed by that attitude. 
Now, Joseph, he said, tell me frankly why you're dogging me about the valley, waiting for a chance to throw stones. He smiled without a reflection on the stolid face of the servant. Benjamin, answered the deep, solemn voice, I know all. It made Connor peer into those broad features as into a dim light. Then a moment of reflection assured him that Joseph could not have learned the secret. Hanamar, whom you know, continued Joseph, has told me about you. And where, asked Connor, completely at sea, did you learn of Hanamar? From Abraham, and I know that this is the head of Hanamar. He brought out in his palm the little watch charm of carved ivory. Of course not at Connor, feeling his way, and what is it that you know from Hanamar? That you are evil, Benjamin, and that you have come here for evil. You entered by a trick, and you will stay here for evil purposes until the end. You follow around to pick up a little dope, huh? chuckled Connor. You trail me to find out what I intend to do. Why don't you go to David and warn him? Have I forgotten the whip? asked Joseph, his nostrils trembling with anger. But the good Hanamar now gives me power, and in the end he will betray you into my hands. That is why I follow you. Wherever you go, I follow. I am even able to know what you think. But hearken to me, Benjamin. Take back the head of Hanamar and the bad luck that lives in it. Take it back, and I shall no longer follow you. I shall forget the whip. I shall be ready to do you a service. He extended the little piece of ivory eagerly, but Connor drew back. His superstitions were under the surface of his mind, but still they were there, and the fear which Joseph showed was contagious. Why don't you throw it away if you're afraid of it, Joseph? You know as I know, returned Joseph, glowering, that it cannot be thrown away. It must be given and freely accepted, as I, old fool, accepted it from you. There was such a profound conviction in this that Connor was affected in spite of himself. That little trinket had been the entering wedge through which he had worked his way into the garden and started on the road to fortune. He would rather have cut off his hand now than take it back. Find someone else to take it, he suggested cheerily. I don't want the thing. Then all that Abraham told me is true, muttered Joseph, closing his hand over the trinket. But I shall follow you, Benjamin. When you think you are alone, you shall find me by turning your head. Every day by sunrise and every day by the dark, I beg Hanamar to put his curse on you. I have done you no wrong, and you have had me shamed. And now you are going to have me bewitched, huh? asked Connor. You shall see. The gambler drew back another pace, and through the shadows he saw the beginning of a smile of animal cunning on the face of Joseph. The devil take you and Hanamar together, he growled. Remember this, Joseph. I've had you whipped once. The next time I'll have you flayed alive. Instead of answering, Joseph merely grinned more openly, and the gambler, to forget the ape face, wheeled and hurried out from the trees. The touch of nightmare dread did not leave him until he rejoined Ruth on the higher terrace. They found the patio glowing with light the table near the fountain, and three chairs around it. David came out of the shadow of the arcade to meet them, and he was as uneasy as a boy who had a surprise for grown-ups. He had not even time for a greeting. "'You have not seen your room,' he said to Ruth. "'I have made it ready for you. Come.' He led the way half a pace in front, glancing back at them as though to reprove their slowness. 
until he reached the door at which he turned and faced her laughing with excitement she could hardly believe that this man with his childish gaiety was the same whose fury had terrified the servants that same afternoon close your eyes close them fast you will not look until i say she obeyed setting her teeth to keep from smiling now come forward step high for the doorway so you are in now wait now open your eyes and look she obeyed again and saw first david standing back with an anxious smile and the gesture of one who reveals but is not quite sure of its effect then she heard a soft startled exclamation from connor behind her last of all she saw the room it was as if the walls had been broken down and a garden let inside it gave an effect of open air sunlight and wind purple flowers like warm shadows banked the farther corners and out of them rose a great vine draping the window it had been torn bodily from the earth and now the roots were packed with damp moss yellow-green it bore in clusters and single flowers an abundant bloom each blossom as large as the mallow and a dark gold so rich that ruth well-nigh listened for the murmur of bees working this mine of pollen from above the great flowers hung down against the dull red of the sunset sky and from below the distant treetops on the terrace pointed up with glimmers of the lake between there was only the reflected light of the evening now but the cup-like blossoms were filled to the brim with a glow of their own she looked away a dappled deerskin covered the bed like the shadow under a tree in midday and the yellow of the flowers was repeated dimly on the floor by a great tawny hide of a mountain lion she took up some of the purple flowers and letting the velvet petals trail over her fingertips she turned to david with a smile but what connor saw and saw with a thrill of alarm was that her eyes were filling with tears see said david gloomily i have done this to make you happy and now you are sad because it is so beautiful yes said david slowly i think i understand but connor took one of the flowers from her hand she cried out but too late to keep him from ripping the blossom to pieces and now he held up a single petal long graceful red-purple at the broader end and deep yellow at the narrow think of that a million times bigger said connor and made out of velvet that'll be a design for a cloak eh? cost about a thousand bucks to imitate this petal but it'll be worth it to see you in it eh? she looked at david with a smile of apology for connor but her hand accepted the petal and her second smile was for connor himself end of chapter twenty four